Well, good morning, guys. How's everybody doing? I think everybody got confused and thought this was Memorial Weekend, so we're missing some guys. So if you see them, harass them. Get them back here. Uh, this is week three, and we're going to pick up uh, in chapter two. So if you got your Bibles, open them up to Second uh, Peter chapter two. Uh, actually, we're going to be in verse 16 of chapter 1, so we'll start there and we'll work our way through verse 3 of chapter 2. And we're now getting into what is really the meat of this um, book. It's false teachers. And that's where he's been leading us all along is to help us to see that there are indeed false teachers in the church. They were true in the first century, they're true in the 21st century. And the, the truth is they're everywhere. They're all around us and they're also among us. That's one of the, the most sobering thoughts in this book is that false teachers um, are not outside uh, as part of the culture. Sometimes they are, but they kind of weasel their way into the church and they begin to influence the church from the inside. And they look good, they smell good, they look like us, sound like us, they say the things that we typically hear, but there's something off. There's something a little bit sketchy about what they teach, and, and it's sometimes hard to discern, and that's why this is so important. That's why we need to know, we need to be aware, we need to know the truth, because if you know the truth, you're less susceptible to the falsehood. So that's where we're going to go this morning, and we're just going to pick it up in verse 16 and, and look at what Peter has to say to these people. He's already kind of given his credibility, his, his uh, curricula vitae, so to speak, his resume. He's an apostle. He's a slave of Jesus Christ. He's been there, done that. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what persecution is all about. And now he's getting into the meat of what he has to say. Here's what he says. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, we looked at this last week briefly. He's going to get into the transfiguration. And once again, he's defending his apostleship. Why does he have the right to say the things that he says? Who is he to talk about these things? Well, this is part of the proof that he uses. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, he being Jesus, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So once again, he's talking about the transfiguration of Jesus. He was there. He saw it. He was part of it. There were only three disciples that were chosen, the inner circle of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And Jesus invited them to go up on top of the mountain where they witnessed this incredible thing that we now call the transfiguration. Jesus was glorified. Uh, he took on a glorified form. It says that his garments were white as snow. They shone brightly. The disciples knew that something incredible was going on because not only that happened, but Moses and Elijah show up. Now, we have no idea how they recognize Moses and Elijah. There were no pictures of Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah had died long before Peter was born. So how did they know? I have no idea. It's probably because of the things that they talked about. As they talked with Jesus, they talked about the Exodus. They talked about Elijah's experience of being taken from the earth by God. We don't know. All we know is that they recognized them for who they were. 
It says that we, Peter, James, and John, were eyewitnesses of what? His majesty, his glory, this incredible shining that took place as Jesus took on his glorified form that he would have for eternity. It says we, we heard with our own ears God validate Jesus. How did he validate him? He said, he's my son. He's my beloved son, which basically is God saying he is who he claims to be. He's the son of God. He's part of the Godhead. And he received glory and honor from the, the mouth of God himself. And that's what Peter, James, and John heard. And then finally, Peter got to participate in the transfiguration. By participation, he didn't do anything, right? He didn't, other than offer to build some tabernacles, which I'm still not real sure what he had in mind there, but he got to at least be a part of it. And only those three were able to see it. And what's funny is Jesus said, and when you get back down from the top of the mountain, don't tell the other disciples. That had to kill Peter because Peter wanted to brag about everything. Peter, Peter couldn't keep his mouth shut, but what do you mean I can't tell them? You know, we got to see something. No, don't say anything. Yeah, but we got to meet Moses and Elijah. No, don't tell anybody anything. But they got to participate. We were with him on the holy mountain. So that's his further validation of who he is. And he's basically saying, we didn't, we didn't make this stuff up, guys. We didn't create this. These are not myths that we sat down and fabricated. The disciples, after Jesus died, didn't sit in a room and write down, okay, now, now let's come up with this thing called uh, the resurrection. Let, let's just tell everybody you resurrected. No, this is the truth. We saw it. We were there. We, we participated in it. And this verifies, gives veracity or truth to what? The gospel. It's interesting that if they had made this up, they basically sealed their fate. And it would take an idiot to do that. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why would you make up the fact that he did only to know that you're going to get killed for doing so? And virtually all of the disciples were, what, martyred for their faith. So he says, no, 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 he, we, didn't, we didn't create this, we didn't make it up. And the very fact that what we say is true, that Jesus Christ did die, he was risen from the dead, he did ascend on high, he is now glorified and sitting at the right hand of God the Father. It validates what we say, who we are, and our role. That's why he started out his whole letter. The, this letter is from Simeon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. I am a messenger for the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not a myth. Now, why is he saying this? Because there are some myths flying around. They've weaseled their way into the church. They're coming out of the lips of those who profess to be believers, but they've made this stuff up. He's juxtaposing his ministry and the ministry of all the other apostles with those of these false teachers who want to look like apostles, but don't have the credibility. They, they, they weren't there. They weren't part of it. They didn't see Jesus glorified. They didn't walk with him, talk with him. They weren't sent by him. And so, in essence, what they're teaching is a myth. Cleverly devised myths is what it means in the Greek. Cleverly. Um, cleverly devised. They've, they've sat down and literally come up with them themselves. They've made it up. That's why he, he compares it to a myth. Sophisticated sounding stories designed to make one appear wise. 
you know, there, there are a lot of books you can go out and buy right now. Um, you know, Mardell's is still around. Most Christian bookstores have shut their doors. Most people buy everything online, but you can go buy Christian books. And if you go to Mardell's, you will find best-selling books written by people who profess to be Christians, and maybe they are, but they're propagating falsehood. They're propagating lies that they've made up. And it's disguised as truth, and they may believe it to be truth, it, but it doesn't gel with Scripture. It, it, it doesn't hold true with the gospel. It's still around today. Fairy tales disguised as truth. That's what they are. And we need to be wary of it, cognizant of it. I remember when I first became a pastor, um, I was Life Stage 4 pastor, and I was scheduled to have lunch with a, a man in Life Stage 4. He was in his 40s, very successful, had been in the church for, for years. And I went to his office to pick him up. And I went in and he said, hey, I'm, I got to go take care of something. Just wait here and we'll go to lunch. And so he left. I'm sitting there. I look at his desk and there's a book written by a very prominent um, evangelical pastor. The only problem is this particular evangelical pastor, I would consider not reliable. And um, I'm not going to tell you who it is because it doesn't matter. But it concerned me that this guy was reading this particular person's work. And um, he came back in, and I, I didn't know how to bring it up. I didn't know how to broach the subject. So we go to lunch, and finally I said, hey, I saw you reading so-and-so. And he goes, oh, yeah, he's my favorite. And that made it even worse. <laughs> I was like, why is he your favorite? He goes, oh, he just, everything he says, I think is, I just, it just resonates with me. And, and, and basically, it was a health, wealth, prosperity kind of gospel. And we had a really interesting conversation. Uh, he didn't agree with most of what I said. He still thought this guy hung the moon. But we at least got to get it out there that, well, here's where it, it can be dangerous. Here's where you need to be careful. And that was the first time it dawned on me that, hey, this stuff's in the church. Um, it's among people that we know and that we hang out with them, that we consider friends and they're reading this kind of stuff, man-made ideas masquerading as God's Word. And that's why we have to know the truth. We have to be able to, to speak the truth into the lives of even those with whom we worship that are reading things that, hey, I got it at Mardell's. It was in the bestseller section. Well, that's great, but that doesn't mean it's gospel. That doesn't mean it's of God. So we need to be careful and, and what I love is that Peter's not afraid to call it out and to expose it for what it is. It, they're man-made ideas. You, you, you made this up. Hey, if you want to go sell it in the fiction section, have at it. But don't sell it in the religious section as the Word of God because it's not. And, and it's, it, when you get those confused, that's where it gets dangerous. You know, in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus quotes from, he's in the synagogue, and he's quoting from the book of Isaiah, and he's quoting his own heavenly father. And he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. And that was a real problem in Jesus' day because the Pharisees were great at it. The Pharisees were always making up new rules, new commands that didn't come from God. They sounded like they came from God. But it was rule after rule, command after command, 
that were the precepts, man-made ideas being sold as the Word of God, and it was deceiving the people, and it was also defeating the people. And so Jesus called it out. Peter called it out. False faith results in a fabricated gospel. What do I mean by that? Those who don't truly know the truth, the, the beauty, the blessings of the true gospel will come up with another gospel. That's what Paul talked about constantly when he wrote to the Galatians and the Corinthians that you believe another gospel that's not a gospel at all. You believe another Jesus that's not the Jesus we preach. You believe another Holy Spirit than the one that we were filled with. It's, it's a, just a little off version of the truth. And again, it's real subtle, but it always leads to what? Falsehood, lies, deception. That's why Jesus warned that there would be what? Fake messiahs and also false prophets. He warned his disciples, guys, it's going to happen. When I leave, you're going to have people running around saying, I'm the Messiah. I've come back. But they're fake. They're false. You're going to have people who claim to be prophets of God, speaking on behalf of God, but they don't. They they don't have the word of God. They don't have the permission of God to say the things they're saying, but they're saying it anyway. And the thing is that there always seems to be people, Christians, who are gullible and buy into it. How do these books become bestsellers? Because we're buying them, and we're reading them, and then we're giving them to our friends. And it's dangerous. It, It can be deadly to a person's faith if they buy into what these false prophets sell. Look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24. Then if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. See, I've warned you about this ahead of time. Here's what they do. They write a book. They start a church. They hold conferences. They speak. They say something that's attractive, people come, they invite their friends, they promote their book, they promote the conference, the numbers grow, the masses appear, and they become popular. And we, because of our culture, we think numbers always mean it must be right. If they're popular, they must be speaking truth. And if people begin to say, hey, I've really benefited from this, or I really got a lot out of this, that that then feeds the frenzy, and pretty soon these people become icons. They become rock stars. And we think, well, gosh, look at all the people that have bought their book. Look how popular they are. They may be speaking truth. Popularity doesn't mean you're necessarily a liar, uh, but we need to be able to see through and look at how does what they're teaching and saying gel with Scripture. And when you see a divergence of those two, that's when you need to be wary and then also be willing to call it out and call it what it is. We have to be careful. I don't, I don't want us to be um, on a witch hunt. I'm not suggesting you go out and denigrate anybody you don't agree with. That's not my point. The point is, if, if you just don't agree with them or you don't like their style, that's one thing. But if they are teaching something contrary to the gospel, that's another thing. That's what Peter is pointing out here. He's always taking it back to what does the Word of God say? What did Jesus Christ proclaim? What did we as apostles proclaim? And if it's contrary to that, 
What did Paul say? Let them be cursed. Let them be anathema. Have nothing to do with them. Don't propagate them. Don't populate their conferences. Don't buy their books. Stay away from them. Why? Because they're out to deceive. Look what Peter says in verse 3 of chapter 3. I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. Now, that sounds a little bit weird because it sounds like these are people who are agnostic or atheistic, and they, they basically mock and scoff at our belief system. They're kind of outside of the church, outside of the faith, and they mock our faith. And those people do exist. But remember, he's writing to Christians, and he's writing about false teachers who have infiltrated the church. This is not about atheists who are making fun of our antiquated, um, imbecilic faith in a God who doesn't exist. These are people who have come into the church who are scoffing, but they're doing it in a way that is incredibly dangerous. Jude, the book of Jude, which is really one chapter, is a really fascinating book because it, it's very similar to Second Peter. There's a lot of debate as to did Peter write his letter first or did and borrow or did uh, Jude borrow from Peter or did Peter borrow from Jude because there's incredible similarities. Somebody borrowed from somebody. Somebody read the other because there's too much similarity. They're both saying the same thing. I don't think there's plagiarism going on. I think it's the fact that they both recognize that this is a problem. And Jude says the same thing. He says, but you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is, is to satisfy their ungodly desires. So this, this idea that there's scoffers in the church, what are they scoffing? What, what are they ridiculing? What are they making fun of? Well, first of all, what's a scoffer? What does it mean to be a scoffer in the New Testament? Well, the Greek word is someone who mocks. They, they deride or dismiss another teaching or another teacher. So what Peter and Jude are both saying is that into the church come these men, and primarily in that century it was men because men did the teaching. They come into the church and they basically say, don't listen to Peter. Peter's nobody. Don't listen to Paul. Paul's one of the worst teachers I've ever heard. He's ignorant. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You need to listen to us. We know, we know truth. They don't. And they dismiss the apostles. So you can see why Paul spent so much time saying, no, 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 no. Don't, 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 don't go dissing me. I was chosen by Jesus Christ himself. I met him on the road to Damascus. You can see why Peter says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, sent by him, led by him, chosen by him validated by him. I saw him transfigured. They're constantly saying, don't dismiss me. Don't scoff at my teaching because I got my teaching from Jesus Christ himself. But scoffers come in and say just the opposite. They dismiss the teachings of Jesus. They develop and dispense their own gospel. They basically come in and say, hey, yeah, that's what Peter said, but here's what I say. Here's, here's what Paul wrote, but we disagree. So their scoffing is in the form of derision, dismissiveness, um, writing off the apostles and just saying, hey, they wrote that, but that's not enough. We have more. We have more wisdom. 
Now, I gave you a whole bunch of handouts attached to your uh, email this week, if you got it. The one that said, Happy Memorial Day a week early. Um, I got confused. Those attachments, I hope you read them because they're all about um, explaining what kind of false teaching was infiltrating the church. We're going to unpack it more over the next weeks, but read those, those articles because they talk about Gnosticism and they talk about docetism and all the heresies that were flying around the church. And, and it basically takes two forms. One is they denied the deity of Christ. He wasn't really God, he was just a man. Or they denied his humanity. He was God, but he wasn't really a man. He just looked like a man. Well, if you take either one of those to their full extent, it means that if he was just a man and not God, then he wasn't divine, which means he wasn't sinless, which means his death on the cross means squat. That means we have no salvation. And what they're teaching is you just need to emulate his life. You don't need his salvation. If they say he's God, but he didn't really become a man, that means, once again, his death means nothing. He didn't really die for my sins and your sins, and we got to take care of our salvation ourselves. Any way you go, it gets dicey. It's another gospel. It's a false gospel. They develop their own. And that's why every one of the apostles warned about these guys, even the apostle John. Listen to what he says. Dear children, the last hour is here. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming. And already many such antichrists have appeared. From this we know that the last hour has come. Here's John saying that, yeah, there is an antichrist coming. He's talked about in the book of Revelation. He's a real person. He really comes in real time, and he does real things. But he says the spirit of the antichrist has always been around. And there are little antichrists, people with the attitude of antichrist, who are in our midst even now. Who, who want to propagate falsehood, who want to deceive and lead people astray and lead them away from the real truth. One of the things that the real Antichrist will do is he will set up a false idol in the temple in Jerusalem, and it's, it's an idol of himself, and he will get the people to worship him. If you think about it, most false teachers end up getting people to idolize them. That's why they become so popular. That's why their pictures, go to the bookstore, and I think this, you'll find this to be true. Almost every book they write has their picture on it. It's always about them. It's always about their ministry, their success, what they've accomplished, what they say. Even their churches seem to always be about them. And so that's why we have to be careful. He goes on in verse 21 and says, I'm writing to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know the difference between tr truth and lies. You should be able to recognize the difference. Who is a liar? Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Anyone who denies the Father and the Son is an antichrist. Anyone who comes in and says, hey, belief in Jesus is, is great, but you need this as well. You need my teaching. You need this truth. You, you need to follow my pattern of teaching. That is, in essence, denying the Father and the Son. It's saying what Jesus said and what God confirmed, behold, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. If you say, yeah, but also listen to me, then you're denying the Father. God didn't say, this is my beloved Son. 
listen to him, and oh, listen to Larry over there as well. Um, he, no, he said, listen to him. What did the disciples teach and preach? Not listen to me because of me, but listen to me because I speak on behalf of Jesus Christ. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit points us back to Christ, and Christ points us to God. It should never point to me. It should never point to anyone who claims to be a spokesperson for God that it suddenly becomes all about me, all about my ministry, my church, my books, my seminars. If you just follow me, no, 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 follow Christ. Always point them back to Christ. He says in verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. We have the word of God. That's what we're teaching. It's like a lamp shining in all this darkness that surrounds the church. Darkness surrounds us today just like it did in the first century. He says that lamp shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The prophetic word. What is Peter talking about? See, one of the, the ways that false teaching shows up, and it's, it, again, go to the bookstore, do a Google search, look into the Christian section on Amazon of their bookstore, and you will find that almost all of these false teachers claim to be prophetic. They, they claim to have a new word from God, new revelation, new thoughts that the apostles didn't have or the church seems to have missed for 2,000 years, and suddenly they are the enlightened ones, and they have something we don't have. But Paul's talking about something completely different when he talks about the prophetic word. He's talking about the Old Testament prophets, but he's also saying that we are prophets as well. We are spokespersons for God, revealing to you the truth of God. How did they do it? Well, Peter wrote, Paul wrote, James wrote, John wrote, their words, what they wrote, became what? The canon of Scripture that we now have. The prophetic revelation of God. We don't need anything more. There is no new revelation from God. We have the completed canon of Scripture. And so Peter is saying, you know, we, again, we didn't make this stuff up. We didn't fabricate it. It came from God in the form of the Old Testament and the prophetic teachings found in the Old Test Testament. And it's all pointing to the sovereign plan of God. It did through the prophets. It did through the gospels. It did through the writings of Peter, James, John, and others. And it's not up for debate. See, this is, this is where I think Peter gets his hackles up. And he's, he's defending Christ and the gospel, but his own ministry. And he's saying, you know, guys, you don't get to play fast and loose with this. You don't get to come up with your own teachings. You don't get to come up with your own gospel. You don't get to debate what parts you like and what parts you don't like. It's interesting today that, in, especially in Western society, is that the, the whole health, wealth, and prosperity thing sells really well here because we can experience health and wealth and prosperity because we have the technology, we have the resources, we have the intellect, we have medicine that keeps us healthy. You take that to a third world country, it doesn't sell as well. My wife does work in Ethiopia, and she works with people who are living in poverty, who literally live on a dump. And it's really hard to sell health, wealth, and prosperity to those people. Because they look and go, okay, well, when do I get it? That You, you teach it to them, but 
It doesn't ever manifest itself. It doesn't show up. It sells here because we get to experience it. We get to see it. And we live to experience and see it. That's why, again, it's, it's not up for me to make up what I think you want to hear and tell you what, you th- what I think will sell, what, what will make my books sell or make my seminars sell. See, if, if we're not careful, we turn the gospel into nothing but a marketing plan. And we tell people what they want to hear. We tickle their ears with the message they want to hear. But see, God had confirmed the words of the prophets. How? Through Jesus. Through his incarnation, through his life and his teachings, but also through his resurrection and then his appearance to the apostles as they listened to him in his resurrected form, as they walked with him and heard him say, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send you the comforter. He did leave, and he did sit in the comforter, and great things happened, and it was confirmed. Everything was confirmed through the prophetic word. So he says, man, listen. Listen up. Pay attention to what I'm telling you. Listen to what the Old Testament prophets said. Compare it to the life of Jesus, and then listen to what Jesus said and see how it's happened. He said the Holy Spirit would come, and he did. He said that the Holy Spirit would provide us with power, and he has, and lives are being transformed. Look at your own life. Look at the transformation that has taken place. You have the power of the Holy Spirit living within you. You don't need this new thing. You don't need to listen to these false prophets who are trying to sell you something that doesn't gel with the teachings of Scripture and the teachings of the prophets. Listen. Listen to what we have to say because it will change your life. It has changed your life. Maybe it, it hasn't brought you this prosperous life that you want. Maybe it hasn't made all your troubles go away, but that's not what Jesus promised anyway. But it's interesting that most false teachers give us promises that don't match what Jesus said. He said, in this life, you'll have trials and tribulations. There are very few false teachers who teach that. They teach just the opposite. In this life, you'll have joy and happiness and abundance. And and so he says, no, no, listen. If they don't match what the prophets say, if they don't match what Jesus taught, if they don't match what the apostles wrote and lived out, then you need to avoid it like the plague. Jesus was and is the long-awaited Messiah. He's the answer. There's nothing else. There's no Jesus plus anything. We don't need a new prophetic word. We don't need new teaching. We need need to go back to the old teaching, the teaching that we've had, the fulfillment of all the prophets that were found in Jesus Christ. That's what's amazing to me is that to think that in the first century, we're not, what, 30 years from Jesus having left the earth when Peter wrote this letter, and already 30 years after Jesus left, we've got a problem. All these teachers have popped up, and they they have infiltrated the church, and they're teaching things that are contrary to the Word of God. Now, let's face it, they didn't have the completed canon of Scripture, but what did they have? Literal apostles, disciples of Jesus walking around. That'd be like if Peter could stand right up here in my place and teach you the Word of God, and you went, nah, who are you? You're just Peter. Oh, yeah, I know. You walked with Jesus. You talked with Jesus. Okay, you saw him transfigured. Who cares? What do you know? 
These men were writing them letters. These men were showing up at their churches. These men were still alive and teaching, and yet people were already rejecting what they had to say. Look at Acts chapter 5. In order to understand Peter, you know, we keep going back into Acts because in Acts we have what these guys actually went through in the first century. It says, then they brought the apostles before the high council where the high priest confronted them. We gave you strict orders never to, again, to teach in this man's name. Whose name? Jesus. Instead, you filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him and you want to make us responsible for his death. See, I love this because the disciples are now walking around teaching, preaching about a resurrected Jesus and how he can transform your life and they're blaming the Jews for his crucifixion. Which, why are you getting upset about that? You did kill him. You ought to be proud of it. You got, got rid of this stain on the Jewish faith by getting rid of this crazy rabbi from Nazareth. But no, they're mad because you're blaming us. Well, you did kind of kill him. You did take him to the Romans. You did accuse him falsely. And he goes on and says, but Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so that people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, who is given by God to those who obey him. So once again, here he is. We saw him. We were with him. We saw him resurrected. And now we're telling you about him and what you can do to change your life. But once again... These men didn't want to hear it. These men didn't want to receive it. These men, the high priest, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, were still propagating their own form of a lie, their own form of truth, and refused to believe the truth that the disciples, the apostles were witness of. See, this idea of a witness is, is really important because it literally means eyewitness. They, they were there. They saw it. Anybody writing today... I can go write a book about anything. That's up to me. If I want to take the time, the effort, and the energy, and then hope somebody buys it, I can do that. You can do that. But I can't write a book and say I'm speaking for God and it contradict God's Word. I mean, I can, but that's a dangerous thing to do because God will hold me accountable, as we'll see in just a second. I'm not an eyewitness. I wasn't there I can only base what I know on the Word of God, the truth of God as found in the Word of God, written by the power of the Holy Spirit who inspired the authors of the various books. I have to go back to the eyewitness accounts. See, Peter was declaring what he saw, what he heard. He was there. We were with him on the mountain, he said. We heard him teach. We saw him risen. That's why I said our words are like a lamp that shine in the dark. Listen to our words because they speak the truth regarding Jesus. He was the Son of God. He did come in human flesh. He did live a sinless life. He was crucified, and he did rise from the dead. And guess what? He's coming back someday. That's the truth. Listen to what we have to say. We are eyewitnesses, and our words are illuminating, life-changing. Those guys' words are not. Those false teachers may sound good, may sound attractive, but their words are not truth. Ours are prophetic and profitable. Our words are trustworthy and true. You can rely on us. What we say is gospel, literal gospel. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, 
No prophecy was ever produced by the will of men. That's important, right? He's saying, again, we didn't make it up. We didn't fabricate it. We didn't create it. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. These people coming into the church who are declaring themselves to be prophets are declaring words that contradict the words of God himself, the words of Jesus himself. And therefore, they shouldn't be trusted. The prophets, he says, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Well, guess what's true of Peter? He is too. Ever since Pentecost, the words coming out of his mouth are the words of the Spirit of God. The words he's putting in this document, this letter, are the words of the Spirit of God, given to him by the Spirit of God. Therefore, he is speaking on behalf of God. His words, his, his letters are literal scripture. And that word in the Greek just means it's, it's literature. It's the literature of God. The contents of this letter become the canon of Scripture. Why? Because they're inspired by the Spirit of God. And that's why we go to this. I'm not saying don't read books. I read books all the time. But if I read a book and that book dis disagrees with this book, I'm going to trash that book. I'm not going to recommend that book. I'm not going to use that book to help change my life because I know it will lead me in the wrong direction. That's why the Word of God is so important. Here's what Paul told Timothy. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Those sacred writings, the Scriptures, then he goes on and tells them, all Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. But isn't it interesting how we always think we need more than Scripture? We need to read this, or we need to read that. I always think it's, it's you got to be wary when somebody says, I read this book and it changed my life. Because I want to say, have you read this book? And it's not changed your life. Why is it we always need something else? Now, if that book you read changed your life because it helped elucidate and explain this book, I'm all over that. I've read a lot of books that have really changed me because they've opened my eyes to the truth of Scripture. But if you just read a book, I, I remember I had a conversation with a, a young lady in our church and this was back during the summer when all the social justice stuff was flying around and everybody's at odds with one another and debates are going on. And she had read a book written by an atheist and that book changed her life. And I pushed back on her. I said, really? A book written by somebody who doesn't believe in God has changed your life? And she goes, oh yeah, it's the best book I've ever written. And, and I, I said, have you ever read this one? Which offended her because she goes, well, I'm a Christian. Of course I've read that. But I said, then why has that book written by somebody who doesn't even know God literally changed your life more than this book has? And that's where the conversation stopped. She didn't want to talk anymore. She didn't want to go any further with that. But see, that's the subtlety. That's the danger. So here's Peter warning these people, and he says, false prophets have risen among you. And I think they're probably looking around going, well, who is it? Remember, they're probably reading this in a, in a community context. The letter arrives, somebody stands up, reads it to the to congregation, and they're probably looking around going, who's the false prophet? Is it, is it him? Is it her? Is it me? 
But he says, they're there just as there will be false teachers among you. They arose among the people in Israel during the Old Testament, and they're right here among you. And what does he say? Secretly bringing in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. False prophets, false teachers, right smack dab in the middle of you, teaching these dangerous heresies. False teachers have always been around. That's what Paul, Peter's saying. They were in the Old Testament. They were among the Israelites as they were working their way through the wilderness. They were there in the land of Palestine when King David was on the throne, when Solomon was on the throne. They've always been around, and they're around now. They're always around. Why? Because the enemy loves to infiltrate the camp. He loves to come right in the midst of us and disguise himself, basically a a wolf in sheep's clothing. That's how he does it. He's always done it that way. Claiming to speak for God, but not having the blessing of God. They're false. They're fake. They're liars. The word false there is pseudos. It's where we get pseudonym, a false name. They are lying. They're deceitful. They're treacherous. They're dangerous. They pretend to be something they're not. Now, I do think there are false teachers who are deceived themselves and are teaching things they think to be literally true, but I think there are many false teachers who know they're lying, who know that what they're saying is not true, but they've been doing it long enough to they know the benefit of keeping the lie up. They've gotten rich doing it. They've gotten popular doing it. I think some are doing it knowing they're doing it. Some are deceived and are doing it. But it's always heresy. It's always a lie. It's not the truth. That word heresy has to do with a a viewpoint. It's expressing a viewpoint, but it's a viewpoint that is wrong. It's against orthodoxy. It's against right teaching. It's, It's a view that is skewed, purposely skewed in most cases. A self determined position that always leads to destruction, if not your own, somebody else's. See, the the perpetrator of it may succeed and make money and benefit, but those who buy into it usually see their lives get screwed up. The the one who's perpetrating it benefits, the person who accepts it gets just the opposite. It's deadly, it's dangerous. And he says, they're among you, and they secretly bring it in. It's not glaring, it's not blatant, it's not obvious, it's secret, and it's false, false. I love this from Thomas Constable. He says, the heretics would seek to add some other teaching to the orthodox faith or some other teaching as a substitute for the truth. The implication is that they would seek to do this in some underhanded way. They would unobtrusively change the doctrinal foundation of the church and thereby make it unstable. Heresies refers to ideas inconsistent with the revealed truth of God. It's subtle. It's simple. It's easy to buy into, but it shakes the foundation of the church. It's some other teaching, some other gospel. It's another Jesus. So what were they teaching? First of all, a denial of Jesus Christ as Lord and Master. Again, read those articles that I sent you because I think they'll help you understand how how that took form. But it's anytime you deny Christ as either the Messiah, the Lord, Son of God, that's a danger. What does he say? denying the master who bought them. It doesn't mean they were saved. That's not what this is teaching. It's saying Jesus Christ died and gave his life 
as the Son of God, and they're denying that reality. Oh, no, he didn't. He either wasn't the Son of God or he didn't really die. Either way, you're denying that reality, and it's dangerous. Teaching that actually denies the lordship of the one they profess to believe in. See, they're claiming to be Christians. They're saying Jesus Christ is the Lord, but they deny his lordship. They deny that he's the son of God. They deny that he actually was a man who lived a sinless life. And that's where it gets dicey and people begin to believe that and buy into it. Claiming to be Christians, but refusing to submit to him as their own Lord. No, he's not enough. I'm my own master. I get to determine my own fate. I get to write my own script when it comes to the gospel. And they see no need to add those things that Peter talked about in the opening chapter. Faith, moral excellence, virtue, brotherly love. They, they don't see any need for that because they've come up with their own teaching and agenda. See, this verse is talking about the fact that it's not about salvation, but outward reformation with no ultimate inward reality. These people did not have their natures changed, and so they returned to the mud like a pig. He's basically saying they weren't really Christians. Many of these false teachers are not really believers. They think they are. They profess to be, but they believe in a different gospel. They believe in their gospel, and that's why they always kind of go back to falsehood, and they live in a cycle of deceit. They, all, they basically almost always teach behavior modification. Just, just do this. Follow my decrees. Follow my six steps to this, that, or the other. And it's not about inner transformation made possible by the indwelling presence of the Spirit, which is what Peter opened his letter talking about. Secondly, they justify sensuality and immorality. Ultimately, it's all about satisfying your own inner desires. That's what they typically teach. When you adopt a lower standard of truth or a new brand of truth, it always leads to a lower standard of morality. Certain things are now permissible. You can do this. You can do that. You can be selfish. You can be self-centered. It's all about me, my health, my wealth, my prosperity, not loving others, not dying to self. It's all about sensuality. It's not sexual stuff in essence. It's anytime it's all about me my needs, my feelings, my desires, my satisfaction. Think about it. The whole health, wealth, prosperity gospel is all about satisfying your desires for stuff, for influence, for power. Christian teaching that appeals to the physical senses alone is false and destructive. Whenever it becomes all about you, you need to be wary. If it's telling you to, it's going to satisfy all your desires, what you want, be careful. It's false. It's dangerous and destructive. Paul told the Philippians, I've told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. It becomes all about here. And again, think about most of the false teaching that's permeated the church over the last 20, 30 years. It all focuses on the here and now, not the hereafter. It's not about the glory to come. It's glory here. Power here, influence here, your best life now. It's not about the, the life to come. And that's, again, what makes it so dangerous and so deadly and so attractive. And again, it's very similar to what Jude taught. Listen to what he says. Ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. These people claim authority from their dreams, 
They live immoral lives, defy authority, and scoff at supernatural things. He's basically giving you a description of false teachers. Here's what they look like. He's not finished. These people scoff at things they don't understand. Like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them, and so they bring about their own destruction. He's still not finished. These people are grumblers and complainers, living only to satisfy their desires. They brag loudly about themselves, and they flatter others to get what they want. Again, go check out the, the section in the Christian bookstore of best-selling books, and you'll see the picture of the person who wrote it on the front more than likely. It's all about them. Well, he's still not finished. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they don't have God's Spirit in them. So what does he say? Many will follow their sensuality. Many will get in line, buy their books, go to their conferences, attend their churches. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Many will buy into what they're selling. And I see it happening all around us. No doctrine, however senseless and monstrous, which under the guise of a religious faith ministers to the sensual appetites of men will ever want followers. What's he saying? This stuff will always sell because we're susceptible. We want to hear it. We want to have our ears tickled. But he says, in their greed, they will exploit you with false word. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. In other words, they're going to get what they deserve for their false words. And that's the last point. False words driven by greed. These people are driven by the wrong thing. The word here is interesting. The, the word for false here is, is uh, plastos. It's where we get our word plastic. It's like you make something and you, you mold it in clay and then you make a duplicate. It's a replica. It's a, it's a fake, a simile. It, it's not the same thing. It's a counterfeit. They're counterfeiting the gospel, but it's not the real gospel. Peter pointed out that the false teachers used feigned words. The Greek word is plastos, from which we get our English word plastic. Plastic words, words that can be twisted to mean anything you want them to mean. The false teachers use our vocabulary, but they don't use our dictionary. I love that. Wearsby's great about just kind of calling it like it is. They use our words, they don't use our dictionary. And it sounds good, it sounds right, but it's falsehood because it's driven by the wrong thing. So here, here real briefly, are char characteristics of a false teacher. Charismatic and persuasive. None of them are ugly, and none of them are stupid. They're always attractive, and they're always persuasive. They focus on the new and the novel. It's always some new revelation, some new idea that nobody's ever thought of. They're typically motivated by greed and personal success. They stress the physical over the spiritual. And by physical, I mean the things that you can gain in this life. They downplay judgment and overpromise blessing. God just wants to bless you. Don't you worry about that. Oh, I know you did wrong, but God wants to bless you. Never judgment. They dismiss the centrality and sufficiency of Christ. That's what they do, and it's pretty obvious. And here's what he says. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. The New Living Translation puts it this way. God condemned them long ago, and their destruction will not be delayed. They're going to get what they deserve. They may be successful now. They may live in nice homes, drive nice cars, have their own private jet. I don't know. But their destruction is inevitable. Why? Because they teach falsehood. They have present success. 
but will experience future judgment. And we don't want anything to do with them. We don't want to propagate them, promote them, be with them, buy their books, go to their conferences, encourage anyone to have anything to do with them. Because like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instinct tells them. And so they bring about their own destruction. What sorrow awaits them? What sorrow awaits them? So here's your questions for today. I know this is a heavy topic, but it's one we, we desperately need to be aware of because it is all around us. What makes the church such an easy target for false teachers to sell their lies? Why are we so stinking susceptible? Why do we just buy into this stuff? We, we have the Word of God. We know the truth. But why do we do this? Secondly, how would a solid understanding of God's Word make a believer less likely to fall for the plastic platitudes of false teachers? Why is it so important that we know the Word of God? Then finally, false teachers tend to sell some version of your best life now. Why is that so appealing and dangerous at the same time? Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for Peter, for his boldness. Thank you that the Holy Spirit filled him and prompted him to put these words on paper so that they would last for eternity, so that we could read them. Father, we are aware that there are false teachers. There are lies being propagated. They have infiltrated the church. Open our eyes. Help us to see the truth, your truth, and may we stand on it, and may we expose falsehood, especially as it infiltrates our congregation. When we see it in the lives of one another, may we point it out, and may we be bold enough to say, that doesn't gel. That's not right. That's wrong. That's dangerous. And may, Father, may we protect the flock of which we're part of. And we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.